This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Ren Bangert, a producer on the show. We're running a summer of themed programming every week here on the New Books Network to celebrate our joining the community. This week, we're bringing you some of our favorite past episodes of Darts and Letters on the politics of education. We'll keep taking you through the greatest hits in our catalog until September, when we're going to launch brand new episodes of Darts and Letters here on the network. Mark those calendars just in time for the new school year. Speaking of which, today we're talking about what can happen when universities sell out and who they're selling out to. You'll hear about the right-wing money that's funneling at a furious pace into universities across the U.S. and how campus activists are working to uncoke their campuses. Why does the right invest so much into scholars and think tanks and how can we resist it? Without further ado, here's our host, Gordon Caddick. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. This is a podcast that brings you ideas bought and paid for by civic-minded billionaires. Thank you to the Monk family, Charles Koch, and the ghost of Leland Stanford. You make this all possible. Yes, today we are talking about the pervasive influence of right-wing money in higher education. It's everywhere. And it leads me to this rather ironic conclusion. I said something like this in the first episode, and I stand by it. It's a generalization, but I think that right-wing people actually value ideas more than left-wing people do. They might even value education more than we do. That's definitely counterintuitive, so hear me out for a second. We know, of course, that the right has this narrow view of education. It's not about critical thinking or the radical imagination. It's much more prescribed. It's about prescribing a set of political values. Capitalist elites good, everyone else get in line. We can call that morally bankrupt and exclusionary, and certainly it is, but there's something there that we can learn. The ideological commitment that they have and their commitment to this sort of utopian metapolitical strategy. It's utopian because well, what is free market libertarianism if not utopian? But it's also utopian in its strategy, its theory of change. They actually believe that intellectuals and ideas can remake the world. I'm pretty sure the right is the only place that still thinks that. Look at the center. They see university as a place for technocratic management of the status quo. For some people, it will mean economic uplift if they do well enough in the meritocracy, but there's nothing imaginative about any of that. The left, not everyone on the left, of course, but big parts of it, I think there there's an ethos of ideological weariness. Grand ambitious narratives are over. 
narratives like socialism, deliberative democracy, or a hope in scientific progress and economic uplift. That's mostly done. We live in a postmodern world of fragmentation, radical subjectivity, social construction, and standpoint theory. We give space for other voices, and we think critically about our own limitations. That's all good. But at the same time, we've lost confidence in our own abilities to actually know the world and to change it. Of course, Marx famously said that it was time for philosophers to change the world. Philosophers didn't listen. Well, actually, some did, the right-wing ones. And most importantly, their right-wing benefactors listened. They know that philosophers can change the world, so they want to be sure that it's their people who do it, not ours. The examples of this are everywhere, too plentiful to catalog. But just to get us going, let's take three recent stories plucked from the news. Exhibit one, Close to Home, a story we've talked about. At the University of Toronto, they canned the hiring of Valentina Azarova. This was after a prominent donor objected. That story has been resolved. After intense pressure, the university reinstated the hiring, but Azarova declined. Exhibit two, just a couple weeks ago now, a Yale historian named Beverly Gage resigned. She said that Yale didn't stand up for academic freedom as donors tried to influence the program that she ran. At Exhibit 3, at the University of Texas in Austin, there's a huge ongoing scandal over the right-wing Liberty Institute. It's complicated, but basically an Ayn Rand-loving oil man gave money to the governor, and then the governor, with the help of some private donors, decided to fund this institute. In terms of the actual process of getting this off the ground, it totally usurped the traditional university governance structure. And on the substance, well, I'm reading now from the Texas Tribune, quote, a growing proportion of our population lacks a basic understanding of the role liberty and private enterprise play in their well-being, the proposal reads. So today on Darts and Letters, we look at the big money that underpins these ideologies. What are these right-wing billionaires offering universities? Why are they offering it? And most importantly, why are universities taking the deal? Professor James Turk takes us back to the early days and tells us the story of one of the first big public controversies about money and academic freedom. It was about the economist E.A. Ross, who taught at Stanford University. Which Proper's name is Leland Stanford University, named after a very wealthy American railroad industrialist who had died. But his wife, Jane Stanford, was the chair of the Board of Governors. And she was outraged that this professor teaching at her university was talking about these robber baron industrialists and how they'd exploited immigrant labor. And so she directed the president of the university to fire him. That whole scandal really led to the creation of the principles of academic freedom. But today, those principles are under assault, especially by the Koch Foundation. You know about their influence in politics, but today we look at their wide network in the world of higher education. All that and more, stay tuned. We need your support. In this episode, we're taking on the deadly ideas funded by Koch and by other billionaires. Of course, we think our show has better ideas. But the thing about ideas, as much as I like them, they are just not enough. You have to build an infrastructure, a place to make them, to understand them, and to mobilize them. The Cokes clearly have done that, and so hats off to them. 
I like to think of darts in some small way as a kind of counterpoint. Admittedly, a puny one. We don't have millions, and we don't have a wide network of think tanks and lobbyists. But we do have you. And so we ask for your help to make our network stronger. This week, if you haven't already, I'm asking you, please, follow Darts and Letters on Facebook, Instagram, and most importantly, Twitter. You can find all of those links on our show notes. And while you're there, share this episode with your friends. Tell them why you like Darts and Letters. Okay, on with the show. Jasmine Banks is the executive director of Uncoke My Campus. That's a group that tracks the Coke's money in higher ed and in K-12. Uncoke is currently running campaigns against them in 15 U.S. campuses. The group uncovers the deals that these universities sign, and they look at the ideas that the Koch Foundation funds. Those ideas are really what got Jasmine worked up and invested in this fight. One of our co-founders, Ralph Wilson, created a report back in 2017 following the roots of the Koch Network's funding to white supremacy, supporting professors that believed in eugenics, professors that had ties and connections to neo-Nazi movements. The Federalist Society and the John Birch Society were part of that constellation, which both have organized to ensure a white nationalist nation in the United States, as well as opposing and undermining civil rights movement. And so that report in particular, the report of advancing white supremacy through academic freedom, really hit home for me. And since then, we've just continued to uncover how the Koch network utilizes populist movements like the Tea Party movement. Now we see QAnon overlapping. We see white nationalists and the evangelical radical right utilize those movements to see their political agendas realized. And it's harmful. It's dividing communities and and creating this very fascist environment. When you say uncover, that's a huge part of this, right? Because a lot of this goes sort of behind closed doors. And a lot of these agreements that the Koch network makes with universities aren't immediately um, apparent to students, to faculty. So can you tell me a little bit about exactly how it is that your organization finds what they find? And in what ways are these deals sort of shrouded? Yeah. So the bulk of the early work of Uncoke My Campus was through records requests to universities. And through those records requests, we were able to uncover ties to particularly at GMU, where there was the donor agreement stipulated hiring and firing. It stipulated the area of research. It stipulated who could be in the programs. So really that was a groundbreaking find for us because it demonstrated what we had intuitively already knew that there was definitely this a massive amount of undue donor influence and control in order to reproduce ideas that really weren't about what the university wanted or the stakeholders in the university. So you mentioned uh, GMU, George Mason University, and um, I was looking at your campaign page around that. It centers on these three very vague and mundane named centers on the campus. The uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but the Mercatus? Mercatus. Mercatus. Yeah. Okay, so you've got the Mercatus Center, whatever that means, the Law and Economics Center, which couldn't be more generic, and then the Institute for Humane Studies, which sounds like, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan, but do you remember the um, the Human Fund? It sounds like the human fund, money for people. (laughs) Okay, so these three centers, what exactly is it that they do? By the way, Mercatus means market. Mm. 
So it's the market center, which is like right on the nose for the free market economics. And so these centers are inside of George Mason University. And rather than diving into the specifics of like, I mean, obviously Mercatus Center is around free market economics and free market economic think tank, the Institute for Humane Studies also, you know, proposes philosophical outcomes, the law and economic center. It's pretty self-explanatory, but what they really do is serve as sites of idea production. And these ideas are ideas that are absolutely in favor with Charles Koch's political agenda. And so they create talent pipelines with graduates, with educators, with industry, and they utilize George Mason's good name and image to basically operate of creating the, the material outcomes for the things that most of us don't support whether it's regressive economic policy, whether it's regressive policy recommendations around child tax credits or earned income, things that folks need to experience relief from you know, systemic structural inequity, you can look to these centers to pretty much oppose them while supporting billionaires continuing to be very, very wealthy and having power. How is it that they manage to fund and to sort of situate such large and significant centers on college campuses where presumably, correct me if I'm wrong, if you put it to much of the faculty and students, they certainly would not support such centers. Is that the case? Like what sort of popular or public response was there in the case of George Mason in particular, but also generally, like what happens when they arrive on campus? Well, most folks don't know that these centers are doing what they do. I mean, we take the case of George Washington University, a very prestigious university, in fact, just uh, announced that they were divesting from fossil fuel interests. But inside uh, George Washington University, they have the Regulatory Studies Center. Regulatory Studies Center money was established through Exxon and through the Coke Industries, Coke Network. And they part and parcel provided deregulation recommendations to Trump's administration. They didn't disclose that they had those industry ties. And so the reason why this is happening, if we're talking from a systemic standpoint, it's because there has been a divestment from public funding of education, institutions of education. And so this sort of dispossession from state budgets has left these gaps that administrators who have increasingly had to meet the demands of an increasingly privatized, corporatized, basically what the neoliberal university system is, they look to these donors and these wealthy donors know that, you know, a couple million dollars gets them not just a name on the building, but validity and goodwill and connection to universities that really ought to be serving people, but have been captured for corporate interests. So generally speaking, my understanding is when an academic program, a class, a hire comes up in the university setting, it's governed sort of collegiately, like the dean and the faculty, and there's usually a faculty senate. In cases like this, do they do an end around? Like how are these agreements signed and then maintained and governed? In a lot of cases, the folks who are on faculty senate are academics that have vested interest in certain donors. Same thing, whether they have the board of visitors or whatever, you know, governing body for the institution. So it's administration and it's folks that their job is to ensure the bottom line, the money gets where it goes. And so some of our initial campaigns were creating a model policy that students and faculty could bring to their senates and their governing bodies to ensure that there isn't undue donor control. 
just like we saw with Yale and Beverly Gage, like, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with no, the news about Yale. Yeah. So Beverly Gage is a, a fantastic 20 plus year academic historian. And because of right wing donor pressure, she resigned publicly from Yale because Yale was bending to the right wing donors thoughts and feelings on how um, a center should be run because of the donation. And so what we're really seeing is sort of this like massive amount of corporate power that comes with these philanthropic donations. And whether it's explicit or covert, there's pressure that's being placed, not just on institutions themselves, but even on academics who may not be in alignment with the donor's ideological direction. And we get questioned all the time, well, what about, you know, (laughs) a lot of folks will randomly bring up George Soros um, as like sort of like the counterpoint of like, well, what about Soros? He's also controlling things. But all of the records requests that we've done over the years, all of the records requests our partners and investigative journalism just doesn't show that same trend on more leftist leaning folks. We really see it highly concentrated on the far, far reaching right. What we call at Uncoke, the sort of like anarcho-capitalist constellation. And so, yeah, that that was actually breaking news, I think, last week or week before last around Yale and this intense, prestigious university bending to donor influence. So, of course, if historical institutions like Yale are experiencing this, then, of course, Florida State University or George Mason University that maybe don't have that same kind of like prestigious historical anchoring are also experiencing this. A lot of people will know about the Koch network and its influence sort of squarely in the in the domain of politics, right? We know about ALEC, about actually writing legislation and um, mm-hmm. influencing political leaders. In the domain of education, I mean, give us a sense. We've talked a little bit about George Mason, but of just the kind of scale we're talking about. How pervasive is their influence in higher ed? Goodness gracious. <laughs> well... <laughs> That's a hard question to answer because we're always a year behind. Um, We we only have access to 2019. We'll we'll be getting 2020 records soon. But at this point, um, there has been over 458 million in grants to over 550 universities in higher ed or or adjacent nonprofits that are inside of the higher ed constellation since 2005. And it's only ramping up. Wow. So it really kind of runs the gamut then with that that many institutions. Are there places where it's like kind of centralized? Is it like mid-tier schools or is it everywhere? It is everywhere. Again, like you can find Coke money at Harvard and you can find it at, you know, University of Illinois, Urbana. And so really what we're seeing is not just money that goes to sort of like a general operating cost or to whatever the institution sees fit. It's funding very specific research, very specific educators with a specific kind of rhetoric. And whenever you're able to do it at scale, at the scale of their wealth, it does shift things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing with our critical race theory report and what we point out in the Koch Network did a whole PR thing about two weeks ago where they issued a statement saying they don't support laws banning critical race theory and they believe that all ideas should be available and part of academic freedom and free speech is wrestling with ideas 
But whenever you disproportionately fund the people who do support banning critical race theory, you cannot disconnect your material investment in people who do believe in banning ideas and then saying, well, we don't believe banning ideas. Like, we don't believe in robbing a bank. We just gave them the guns and the map and we told them where the bank was located and helped them stake it out, right? Like, but we didn't rob it. And it's that kind of, you know disingenuous rhetoric that we keep trying to organize folks to understand that yes it's okay that people fund ideas that maybe uncoke my campus or other institutions may not agree with but that's not what this is this is a very specific targeted attack to create conditions to reproduce your ideas that actually there aren't tons of academics and students going, gosh, I wish I could learn about how the free market, you know, takes care of everything that I need. They're seeding ideas that anyway, so I'll step off the, the soapbox. And, um. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And, and I wanted to ask you more about the CRT story in particular, because it's something that we talked about, but we didn't really dig deeper into the Coke influence in that like timeline, you know, with a certain number of flashpoints, you know, people know about Chris Rufo, I think his name is, and how he went on Tucker and, and then there's all these protests and stuff, but sort of behind the scenes, what was the Coke part of that story? You know, we had this spider sense. I mean, when you've been doing this work for so long, the talking points are the same. Mm. (laughs) And back whenever our co-founders published the advancing white supremacy report, we had the same kind of rhetoric that was coming up, this resistance to diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you will recall back in from like 2016 to 2018, many folks were talking about what does DEI look like. And so when the same usual suspects started having these talking points emerge in social media spaces, we decided to do a sampling to really see who was behind things. And so we reviewed the published materials of 28 think tanks and political organizations that had a direct affiliation with the Koch network. And we analyzed all of their rhetoric tactics and what it... (laughs) You know, after looking through, goodness gracious, over 146 articles, and we we actually had to create like a hard stop for ourselves because it was during the ramp up of it. Otherwise, we would be just analyzing forever. But essentially, no one was talking about critical race theory until several specific think tanks started publishing talking points, news articles that were full of disinformation, as well as reports that were absolute disinformation. And then as soon as those think tanks activated, we began to see now more than 25 state legislators who were part of the ALEC constellation adopt these model policies where before they didn't have any concern around critical race theory. And so that was an example for us of how the Koch network think tanks are able to foment ideas with very little effort that these bases then run with. And it's really concerning and because to me, what this indicates is that if the Koch network who are very coordinated, if they decide to deploy the full might of all of their think tanks, instead of just a very small number that started the moral panic against critical race theory, what does that look like? And I think the answer has been in front of us in the form of climate, why the United States continues to fail to be a leader around climate and addressing the climate emergency. And that is in direct correlation with the kind of climate disinformation that has come out of Koch 
think tanks, with Koch academics, and then producing this climate denialism. It's a scary thought what you just suggested there about the sort of scale, because, you know, looking at your report, I think you're talking about 28 different centers publishing 70 some odd pieces that you looked at. But earlier in the conversation, we were talking about 500 plus so if they were to mobilize all of those, like to, if you think about how that was able to capture the discourse for mm-hmm. months. Yes. It's still happening. And now it's become this sort of entity of its own and they are able to sit back and go, ah, oh, it's not us. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we, we saw the same thing in the States around um, COVID, mm-hmm. the Great Barrington Declaration and these sort of like reopen protests and COVID denialism. Those also were connected to Coke think tanks, some of actually the same think tanks that are now a part of this CRT panic. And so we have to think about the impact on civil society in our communities, right? Undermining public safety, undermining climate action, undermining, you know, history and education that honors what Black and Brown people have experienced in stopping economic and social progress for our futures. Like that, those have really, really grave implications. This is why this is such important work to me, because these outcomes that keep being produced by all of these financial investments, and that's really what they are, right? It's not philanthropy. It's not, I'm investing in the good of community. These are like, these are Koch's financial investments in the political realities he wants to see realized. Talking about it as an investment really makes sense to me because it's not sort of an organic, you know, you you wouldn't see that sort of constellation and coordination if it was 25 right-wing intellectuals who in their own right are thinking up these ideas. There's kind of a a mechanics of it that's really different, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jane Mayer uncovered several months ago an incredible piece where she got a recording of an internal meeting of a high-level executive in Stand Together, which is the newest, one one of the newer entities in the Koch Network's attempt at rebranding itself, saying that actually their data was showing that people supported for the People Act. People supported the messaging that billionaires should not be able to control or buy elections. And so rather than attempting to do narrative shift or grassroots outreach because it was favorable with the people for there to be checks on dark money's impact on our, you know, our attempts at an inclusive democracy, they had to use an inside the dome or under the dome strategy, which is them naming that they have their internal lobbyists, they have their inside folks in the establishment. And so they can undermine we the people's will because it it doesn't work for them. But they had the data demonstrating that we wanted that, right? Our communities were tracking with this idea that dark money shouldn't be able to rule our democratic processes. So we're seeing those kind of things more and more. We continue to see it with the Federalist Society's impact on judges in our courts. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, those are folks that had relationships and connections to the Koch network. And we're, we're, you know, so we're seeing it at every level of government in the United States. and, And it's absolutely unacceptable. It is eroding our institutions and it is creating conditions that unfortunately, if for anyone who's a a study of history, leads to fascist outcomes. And it's just not the best of all worlds. It's like, it's the best of all worlds for billionaires, for like the the 1% of the 1%. But the rest of us, this is not 
our climate needs us to intervene. Like mm-hmm. our communities need us to intervene in in the Coke Network strategy. Why is it that in your own kind of activist circles in the African-American community, the Coke name wasn't often cited. Is that just a matter of just that they're so opaque and that there's not much knowledge of it? Or why do you think that that is or that was, that there wasn't as much attention as there is now? I mean, my community is one tiny cross-section of the vast diaspora of Black folks, but also to be frank, in my multi-ethnic, multicultural spaces um, that are a part of more broad pluralistic movement spaces, mm-hmm. Coke Network also isn't named. Like if had I not been doing this work, I wouldn't know that back from 2014 to 2016, the Coke Network deeply, deeply invested in anti-choice movement, anti-abortion movement, and led to what we saw happen in Texas of, you know, essentially banning all forms of safe abortion. And so I think it's a political education issue. I think it's a historic issue. You know, that's why folks like Nancy McLean, who are within the um, history discipline, naming these things is so important. You know, and I think it speaks to a larger issue that many folks have around how the neoliberal conditions that we are experiencing right now keep us from knowing our own histories, keep us from understanding what happened to activists and organizers before us. There are lots of folks my age and younger who don't have a clear version of history that don't have this like just now we're reckoning with Columbus Day and trying to transition into Indigenous Peoples Day because we have had these statues and buildings of influential men who were violent as like those were the things that we walked into right like and so we see this sort of like long-term version of image laundering that has happened within you know the settler colonial experience that we're all having right now and so you know Charles Koch I think after he's gone will be in the same vein of folks will want to tear down the buildings with his name on it and the statues because folks will have had at that point, hopefully, a broad education on how this man advanced for his personal gain climate disaster and um, really, really destabilized our democracy, all for controlling markets. It's Mm -hmm. wild, like the level of sort of like deep greed that motivates this political strategy is we can't not have that conversation. I'm curious about where exactly this is going because there's more and more conversation about the Cokes. I mean, this is not a name that is unknown to our audience. But with that light of day, with with the agreements and with the investigative journalism we've been talking about, is it kind of ratcheting down or is it only increasing? Like, what are we seeing in terms of the broader trends? Yeah, it's increasing with the ultimate goal, as Nancy McLean and other um, incredible activists, historians, and educators have said, the ultimate goal is the uh, to abolish education, public education altogether, a world where the land that you live on in Texas and the building that you're renting is from owned by Coke and the schools are private Coke-funded charter schools with curriculum um, that was written by Koch entities. So it really is this sort of like oligarchic future that we're headed toward where corporations have control over our communities. Like we showed in our funding report, there was a a vast spike in the Mm. last three years of how much money that they're flooding into universities. And back in 2018, during one of their shareholders meetings that um, several 
quotes and documents were leaked, they said that their goal was to deeply invest in education, both K through 12 and higher education. So I do not anticipate based on where their funding and strategy priorities are that we're going to see this be slowed in any, in any time soon, unless the institutions and communities really begin to take a stand and pledge not to accept Coke funding and really reject it and reject it as something that comes with a level of really harmful outcomes and realities. And, and that's why we call on institutions to be accountable. Like don't accept um, this level of money and influence from this entity because ultimately what you end up getting is <laughs> like folks at the Re regulatory study center who said smog isn't really that bad because it protects people from who have high risk of skin cancer from getting the rays of the sun to them. Jesus. Like. Or curriculum that we uncovered in records in Arizona that said one of the reasons why Neanderthals didn't survive is because they weren't good entrepreneurs. Jeez. That was Jasmine Banks. She's the executive director of Uncoke My Campus. If you want to find out how you can get involved on your campus or on your school board, check them out. They're at uncokemycampus.org. And if you want to learn more about the Cokes in general and their political influence, there's two things I'd recommend. Check out the work of Nancy McLean. She has a book called Democracy in Chains. And in The New Yorker, Jane Mayer has been reporting about dark money in politics for a long, long time. James L. Turk is the director of the Center for Free Expression at Ryerson University in Toronto. He's also a big union and labor guy in academia. He served as the executive director of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, or CAUT. A lot of what that association does is fight back against donor influence in higher ed. And when Professor Turk was director, they wrote a big report on this. It came out in 2013. And it was called Open for Business on What Terms, an analysis of 12 collaborations between Canadian universities and corporations, donors, and governments. More recently, in the Valentina Azarova case, it was that association that led to the censure of U of T. It worked. The university caved. The CUAT is part of a longer history of professors pushing back against right-wing money. In fact, that's how the American Organization of University Professors began. And that's why academic freedom was codified in the way that it was. And so I called James Turk because I wanted to get the long view on right-wing money, academic freedom, and university labor organizing. James Turk, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. By way of background, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the history of labor organizing in academia, and especially the American Organization of University Professors. I know it was started by John Dewey. Tell me a little bit about who John Dewey was and why it started, and then what were its kind of early fights in terms of money in academia? John Dewey was a leading American intellectual, and he and a whole group of others founded the American Association of University Professors in 1915, largely in response to the inordinate influence that donors and wealthy patrons had on what universities did. 
the best example of it was a case of a guy named E.A. Ross, who was a very prominent American economist. He was a professor of economics at Stanford University. And in his economic work, he was interested in issues of immigration and doing research on how much of the wealth that was accumulated by industrialists in that period was on the basis of being able to exploit cheap immigrant labor. He was teaching at Stanford University, which Proper's name is Leland Stanford University, named after a very wealthy American railroad industrialist who had died. But his wife, Jane Stanford, was the chair of the Board of Governors. And she was outraged that this professor teaching at her university was talking about these robber baron industrialists and how they'd exploited immigrant labor. And so she directed the president of the university to fire him. Was he explicitly calling out Stanford and his economic writings? This wasn't an attack on Stanford. Mm -hmm. It was talking about wealth inequality and immigration and and how wealth had been built in the United States. So he was talking generally, mm. but Stanford was a wonderful example of precisely what he was talking about. So Dewey and other prominent academics were really troubled by what was going mm. on. And so formed the American Association of University Professors. And one of the first things they did was develop what was the major statement and continues to be the major statement, what academic freedom is and why it's important mm. uh, for universities to fulfill their societal function. In the case of Ross, when he was dismissed, what kind of reaction was there from the community at Stanford University? And also, like, what, if any, protections would he have had? Like, was this a a gross violation of certain protocols or was, was this kind of, you know, the Wild West and they could do whatever they wanted? In theory, there was a recognition that something like that would be inappropriate in the university, but there was no policy. There was no rules when he was fired. A number of people were outraged. Some high-profile people quit their jobs at Stanford in expression of solidarity with him. Lots of people who may have been outraged didn't quit their jobs because they didn't have a place to go. There was no protection for university faculty. So there weren't a lot of alternatives. And what Dewey and the others who founded the American Association of University Professors wanted to do was to create a policy on academic freedom and create a culture where it was seen to be a violation of a fundamental cultural standard to do what Jane Stanford had done. And then in 1940, they worked with the Association of Universities in the United States to develop a revised statement on academic freedom and get universities to acknowledge and agree to that and set up a system where they would censure universities if they acted in a way contrary, if they violated academic freedom and tried to create various kinds of social pressures on universities not to misbehave in this way. Does Ross have tenure or is this something that's sort of created through um, the union? Well, no, the whole university world is, a, is sort of a strange place in the sense that you get hired and then you essentially go through a six-year probation period. And if at the end of that probation period, you're deemed to have met the requirements, then you're given tenure, which is not a guarantee of a job for life. It's just saying from that point on, they can't dismiss you without just cause. Mm -hmm. But in the absence of a collective agreement with a union, it's hard to enforce that if a university violates that. In other words, it's not a contract. It's a thing they've given you. So there was an effort to use public pressure, social pressure, shaming, and so forth to get universities to live up to 
the principles that they nominally subscribe to. I mean, remember, big-scale unionization in North America started in the late 30s and the 40s in the formation of industrial unions like the auto workers and the steel workers. And um, public sector unions, as we know them today, came along much later. But a lot of academics thought, well, we're not workers. I mean, it's sort of an elitist view of themselves. We're not workers. Uh, we're not employees. The tradition of universities, theoretically, was they're collegially governed. And at some old universities like Oxford and Cambridge, the highest authority is the collectivity of faculty. Now, in North America, the tradition was very different. There were boards of governors and there were academic senates, which were the senior academic body, and they sort of jointly governed. So the notion was we're actually the people who help run the place. So we're not employees. So unionization for many faculty, especially at that time, was, was sort of a foreign concept. But as these kinds of uh, heavy-handed administrative tactics started coming, people got upset about them. So this was an ongoing struggle. It was just not dealt with in labor management terms. How does um, Dewey then and the association, you said they sort of define principles of um, academic freedom. What, What do those look like exactly? Well, the underlying principles of academic freedom would continue to this day are, there are four aspects of it. Your teaching, your research, your ability to comment on what's happening inside your university, and your freedom to exercise your rights as a citizen outside the university. I was hoping we could kind of like mine the, the history for a couple other stories, maybe maybe of this ilk. And I was really thinking about the report that you folks did. It was, it was a while ago now, November 2013, open for business, kind of looking at- right research collaborations and corporate donors. There's one episode that kind of is formative for me that really sticks out because I did my um, undergraduate at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Basically, at one point, the university had signed an exclusivity deal with Coca-Cola. They signed a deal that would make UBC an exclusive, uh, you know, wouldn't have PepsiCo. And there were, there were these like provisions about how many pops would have to be drank, but that was all secret. When it finally came out later, it was an inordinate amount. It was like two a day or something for a student. Like you'd have to fill swimming pools with this stuff to actually use it. Because the students didn't live up to the quota, at a certain point, there were, I guess, penalties or the money that Coca-Cola was was giving to the school dried up. It became this huge controversy on campus. People were like literally torching Coke machines. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, like I say, it was resolved so much later because the student paper was suing the university for so long before the actual deal and its terms came out. And so I was thinking about this story as I was reading Open for Business because so much of it, you know, centers on kind of transparency, academic integrity, and these kinds of conflicts of interest. So what episodes there in Open for Business sticks out as a specific case of sort of undue corporate influence in the academy? Well, I mean, the case you mentioned was a very high profile one, and UBC was not alone. I mean, we keep going back to the same thing. Part of the serious cut in public funding drove universities to be as creative as possible in finding alternative sources of money. So the corporate money was sort of filling in additional gaps, not because they were greedy, but because they needed it to provide good quality education to their students. Those actually aren't the things that bother me. The problem were collaborations with industry or wealthy donors that hijacked aspects of the academic work that allowed those wealthy donors or those corporations to influence what got taught. A really interesting study was done and published in 2010 by the Center for American Progress in the United States 
it did a study of collaboration agreements between American universities and major energy companies. The biggest one was a collaboration agreement between BP, British Petroleum, and the University of California at Berkeley for half a billion dollars. <laughs> so it was big money. And what they wanted to look at was, did the university have to give up any of its academic integrity to get this money? And so they looked at all these agreements, and they found out that almost none of them provided any protection for the academics. So based on that, at CUT, we said, well, we want to look at what's happening in Canada. Are there collaboration agreements between industry or wealthy donors and Canadian universities? Now, Canada's university sector is so much smaller than the American one, we couldn't focus just on one industry like energy. We tried to gather all of the major collaborations we could find. And like the Center for American Progress, the first thing we discovered is the terms of them were almost all secret. We had to spend a year or two through access to information, otherwise getting access to these agreements. But you got them all, or at least you got 12 of them. We, we got 13 out of 25. The Center for American Progress had a whole team of lawyers that spent <laughs> years getting these agreements before they could do their report. So the secrecy seems to be a key part of it. We looked at asking the same kinds of questions. What was compromised in all these deals? And we found for the most part, there were serious compromises that universities were willing to make, compromises in their own academic integrity in order to get this money. And the principal exception was the University of Toronto. As I recall, two of the major ones we looked at at U of T were with Gold Corp and Pierre Lassonde Corporation. Pierre Lassonde, I think, was the owner of Gold Corp at the time. There were some major collaborations between U of T and Gold Corp and the Lassonde Foundation. And the university upheld the integrity of the university in these deals. That is, there's nothing wrong with having partnerships with industry as long as you don't give up your integrity. In other words, industry is coming to the university for some reason, because any of these corporations could set up their own in-house research departments. They all have their own in-house research departments anyways, and could hire people to do the research. So they're coming to the university for a reason, and there's some stature in saying, well, this project was done by faculty at the University of California or the University of Toronto or whatever. So did the universities say, well, we're happy to have you, we're happy to have our faculty have these opportunities, but there's a bottom line that we're not prepared to cross. And UFT was one of the few in Canada that actually did uphold its integrity. What about the Monk School, which, which figures into this report? I mean, for people who don't know, he's like a mining magnet in Canada who gave $35 million to what is like probably the top kind of international relations department or facility in Canada at the University of Toronto, the Monk School of Global Affairs. And I mean, your report says that he has, or the organization does, excessive discretion in determining the mandate and the direction of the school. Right. The Monk School reports to the donors and a board of donors. How was that kind of deal made? So they, they have a whole fundraising department and team that put together these deals in secret. So how they reach them and what's agreed to Nobody knows except people mm -hmm. who are around that table, which is why, you know, one of the demands of CUT was that all these things should be public, not something that you find out about when it's announced that there's a new partnership. And even then you're not allowed to see the terms of it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what led to it, but there were a variety of things in that particular agreement that were of concern. There were some silly things. As I recall, there was a main entrance that was through a, an old building that they had maintained the facade of on Bloor Street, yeah. and then a side entrance, and only certain people were allowed to use the main entrance. You know, typically in these things, there'll be some sort of advisory committee. Now, what you got to get down into is the details. What are the powers of the advisory committee? I mean, the donor, if somebody puts up $50 million, does have a right to know how their money is being used and what it's being used for and so forth. But the donor doesn't have a right to say, well, 
you're setting up this center uh, for physics and we, we want you to hire this person. We want you to deal with these issues. They don't have a right to do that. And so there's no problem in principle with having a committee. It's when those advisory committees become steering committees or executive committees with authority over what goes on. And when the majority of people on them are from the donor and are not academics. So in all these, all these agreements, we had to pour through the detail to see who actually was in charge. Mm. And sometimes that's mystified or hidden away. And, and who's, who's a charge at Monk? That work was done eight years ago, so I don't know what the situation is today. For the most part, it looked like the academics were in control of the situation, but there were all these ambiguous things. I mean, this ridiculous stuff, well, if you you know, you know weren't of a certain status, you couldn't use the front door. Uh, there was some ambiguity as to whether the advisory committee was simply an advisory committee or whether it had some powers that were inappropriate. So I don't remember all those details now, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't a clear-cut gross case. You know, you began with the example of Cope. I mean, that's really offensive, but it doesn't undermine the academic integrity of the university. It's just embarrassing stuff. And there were aspects of the Monk deal that were embarrassing, but didn't necessarily uh, violate academic integrity. Yeah, it seems like there's kind of always an implicit threat because, I mean, I, from the report, it talks about how the donor and the, the board can sort of like terminate this agreement at any point if they see that the institute isn't you know, achieving its objectives. But that's so vague, right? I mean, how does one interpret that? And in what ways does that lead to this almost like self-censorship of the faculty in terms of what they do, who they hire, because what they might think that the donor might think of in terms of the objectives. So in that gray area, you know, that's where I can imagine people would be sort of skittish. But that, that's a huge problem universities always faced. Mm. Classic universities like Oxford and Cambridge would be worried about offending the king and would their monies be <laughs> cut off and so forth. It's not a new type of problem, but it's a worse kind of problem when you rely on it. And especially when you do it secretly, as most of these agreements are. So with these 13 agreements that you looked at, from what you remember, which one of those sort of offended uh, your sensibility most? I think most of them offended my sense. <laughs> I mean, anytime a university gives away control of essential aspects of its core work, whether through a collaboration agreement or a donation or whatever, to stop certain kinds of work from being done, to stop certain kinds of work from being published, to say that students can't be taught certain things or have to be taught other things, there's a fundamental problem that undermines the whole purpose of the university and society. Mm. And there were aspects of that in most of those agreements, one or another thing. I mean, the purpose of the study was to highlight these and try to put public pressure. The university always said, no, no, it isn't what it appears. And it provoked, you know, a good deal of discussion that was useful. So there was some opportunity to, to clean some of this up. But the origin of these big cases was at the University of Toronto in the late 1990s. The university had signed deals with Nortel, with Joseph Rotman Foundation, after which the business school is now named, and with Barrett Gold, the head of which was Peter Monk. And in all three of these agreements, the university gave away the store. And fortunately for faculty and for the public, brown envelopes arrived at the Faculty Association office in 1997. With the terms of these agreements, they were just outrageous. And so Bill Graham, who was a, a senior professor of philosophy and president of the Faculty Association, went public with all this. They varied enormously by agreement, but the essence of it in all of them, the university had allowed these industrial partners to have influence over academic matters that they shouldn't have. And so as a result of the publicity, all three of them were rewritten to take out the harmful part. And the university agreed at the time 
that any collaborations worth a quarter of a million dollars or more would be shared publicly via the governing council. And so that was a real victory. And that was the first and only university I know in Canada that made that agreement. I understand now the university requires people who want to see the agreements. They don't hide them, except you have to formally request them to access to information, but they're provided. Right. So the University of Toronto, while it had some terrible deals, and as a result of huge public pressure and debates and so forth, did ultimately move in the right direction. That's where the fight really started in Canada around these matters. Since the, these episodes, where is this all going? I mean, the government funding as a percentage of the overall operating budgets aren't like they were. They aren't coming, going back. They certainly are not. Is this problem getting worse? Is it just getting kind of like normalized, like in, in a sense, like it's most odious elements, you know, complete secrecy and like kind of blatant corporate control is no longer, that's not kosher, but, you know, a certain element of like standardized industry funding is now just everywhere and it doesn't shock the, the sensibilities of us because it's been so normalized? Well, it's a combination of, of all those things. Uh, it is normalized in the sense that it's ubiquitous, common, it's everywhere. You can go into a number of law schools and every classroom is named after a law firm that's made a donation. Most universities actually have a menu so that if you, don't, if you donate so much, you get a, a classroom named after you. If you donate more, you may get a building named after you. If you donate even more, you may get a faculty named after you. And the more prestigious the university, the more each of those things costs, right? So you could probably get a classroom at U of T for what you could get a whole faculty at Thompson Rivers University. Now, that's on the, the visible side of things. And I find that offensive, but it isn't compromising the integrity of what the university does. With regard to things that compromise the integrity, all these collaboration groups, we just don't know. Hmm. For the most part, all of them continue to be negotiated in secret. We only know about them when the university makes an announcement that it has just entered into a partnership with Corporation X, which is going to mean $40 million for its Center for Biological Sciences. Unless you can get access to the terms of that agreement, you have no way of answering the question you ask. Hmm. And I guess what we're saying is the first thing that needs to be done is this all needs to be done in the light of day. Corporations want to make money available to the universities and don't compromise the integrity of the university. That's great. Then you have to deal with the second problem that you mentioned. So even if it's public and open, are universities self-censoring, are faculty self-centering in a way that the partner doesn't have to impose a condition? People anticipate what might piss off the corporate partner and don't do it. Mm -hmm. But that's an old problem in universities. There's all these ways, like when I think of corporate influence, I, I try to think like, is there a reformist position? Like, is there a set of sort of terms that we can enforce to maintain certain kinds of academic integrity? And then as long as we do that, we're okay. Or do we take the kind of much more absolutist position, which is where I would tend to say is just like get the money out of research in general, because I think there's a way in which corporate funding, even without kind of overt, heavy-handed kind of meddling in academia can still shape an entire field, right? Like if you have oh, yeah. one critical scholar who has no funding and then a whole other family of people who have a bunch of corporate backing, they're just much more productive, right? And then so right. over time, you have a completely different sort of epistemological worldview even in yeah, certain yeah. disciplines without anyone ever saying, this is what you have to do. Just kind of material forces that, that shape academia. You're absolutely right. And I share your view. However, there's not an easy solution to that problem. Mm -hmm. 
So in my view, the starting point is let's make sure there are no secret agreements, that any agreement between a donor or industry of any consequence has to be disclosed publicly, ideally has to be discussed with the affected faculty members before it's agreed to. We still have to deal with indirect influence of the sort you were just describing. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, we can try to stop the, the extreme yeah. obvious violations, which we aren't stopping at the moment. It was a battle to try to get universities to understand that it's not surprising that a corporate donor would want to influence what research is done, who's hired, and so on. The problem is not the donor asking for that. The problem is the university agreeing to that. When the right answer is to say, no, there are certain things that distinguish the university, and we can't accept the money on those terms. But most universities apparently haven't done that. So Let's make this more of a subject for discussion. That's why I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you. And then we can begin dealing with the much thornier problems of the indirect influence of people self-censoring. And uh, do you shape what you're going to do? I mean, those are big, difficult, worrying questions. One of the things we, we talk about uh, in the research we were doing about corporate collaboration, open for business, was where there was an agreement that was legitimate and provided money to a biology department, for example. What provisions were there to provide assistance to those faculty members who weren't engaged or not interested in that work? Mm. It's one thing to make sure that it's doled out fairly to those who are interested. But as you were suggesting, it's equally important to ensure that those who don't like that kind of research or students who don't want to pursue that are not disadvantaged because of that. So there should be provisions for alternate sources of money to make up for those who aren't interested. So, I mean, a lot of complex issues, but we're at the very beginning of this. Mm. Most of these deals are still secret. Yeah, we're going to need uh, a lot more journalism, a lot more research, a lot more filing of freedom of information requests. I hope people do it. Well, I hope so, too. I mean, that's why I spend a lot of my life in our Center for Free Expression at Ryerson. One of our major priorities is to lobby and put on a lot of public pressure for much better access to information mm -hmm. laws in Canada. Our laws are terrible. There needs to be whistleblower protection. There needs to be good anti-slap protection to stop you being silenced because some wealthy donor or corporation doesn't like what you're doing. So, I mean, all these things, I think, have to be a part of how we protect the integrity of our work. That was James L. Turk, director of the Center for Free Expression at Ryerson University, who's also previously executive director of the Canadian Association of University Teachers. In the interview, we talked about their 2013 report, Open for Business on What Terms, an analysis of 12 collaborations between Canadian universities and corporations, donors, and governments. You can find that on our show notes, and you can find James on Twitter at James L. Turk. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jake Coburn. Our assistant producer this week was Jason Kohanam. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Research from Dave Moscroft. We also had research and advising from Franklin Bartol and Professor Mark Spooner. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souten. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at sightedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. While you're there, help boost the show. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Thanks to our most recent patron, Justin Robinson. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Sighted Media. 
and we are backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of the public intellectual. This is also part of a larger project that's looking at neoliberal educational reforms. The lead academic advisor on that is Professor Mark Spooner at the University of Regina, and the lead researcher is Franklin Bartol at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday. Thank you.